Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey man, what's up? Hey, I've had a pretty exciting week. You know how sometimes you talk about how you're trying to fill gaps in your cinematic knowledge? Yeah. I've been doing the same thing and I finally watched Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 2. I'd seen the previous four fairly close to when they released in cinemas but i just didn't i didn't want it to end right? to be honest i'm i'm shocked that you didn't hurry back to the cinema after twilight breaking dawn part one which is one of the strangest mainstream blockbusters ever made well except for except for <laughs> twilight breaking dawn part two yeah and it, i gotta say it really lived up to uh the hype or people consider it to be bad but i think it was the best one man it's great it's i love great. i love both the breaking dawns are classics in their own way there is so much law in this film i just couldn't get past like how much plot is in there like <coughs> like the werewolves and vampires was not enough to sustain the franchise so now they got these like x-men superpowers i didn't know what was going on <laughs> something like rami malik turns up as like a sort of egyptian oh, i forgotten that he's in it and lee pace is a sort of sexy uh designer stubble vampire yeah and then the fucking Renez May Uncanny Valley Child stuff. Oh, yeah, that's so good. I mean, it was famously bad CJ at the time, but this is six years ago now, so yeah. the time has not been kind to it. So yeah. just the, the, the sequence where Jacob falls in love with the baby, that's in the first... That's in Breaking Dawn Part that's 1. That's in Breaking Dawn Part 1. Yeah, so, that is seriously messed up, the whole imprinting thing. So you have to remind me what how that romance is continues between Jacob and the baby in the in the second one. Well, the impl- well, the child grows like in a year. She's like seven or eight or something. And the implication is that... What, in- she's just rushing up to puberty so they can bang ASAP. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and then like in the sort of climactic battle... A random Brazilian vampire turns up. He's like, I am the same as her. I am a mortal, immortal vampire or something. It's like and- Father Ted or something, isn't it? It's like <laughs> the Brazilian priest, the <laughs> like, yeah. the mind-reading priest. But, but he says, like, I reached full maturity when I was seven years old. So the implication is that in seven years' no. time, Jacob and Renez No. 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 Awful. Don't, make it don't do it. But I did laugh out loud several times. That I found the whole ripping people's heads off thing very funny. Like, because the only way you can kill a vampire is by, like, decapitating them or setting them on fire. Yeah. And there's, like, a sort of flashback scene where they rip off this woman's head and then throw, throw a kid on the fire. But it's, like, Monty Python levels of... It's just amazing. I think the highlight was Michael Sheen, who's, like, the only actor who's aware of the film he's in. Like, yeah, he's yeah. matching the tone of the ridiculousness. In a way which is brilliant. And his uh, laugh is kind of brilliant. He has like, this amazing evil cackle yeah. that bursts out at one point. It's just, it's just give that man an Oscar. It was incredible. Ah! 
And of course, it has the famous uh, climactic scene where there's like a huge battle royale between every character and they all die. And then it turns out to have been a dream. <laughs> yeah, that was great. <laughs> I wouldn't have had it any other way. No, no, it's so good. And then like, I just love how, well, it's a vision that's been given to the, the bad guys. Yeah, and yeah. it's like, you know, mutually destroyed destruction or something like that. You know, look at what's going to happen. It's not worth it, mate. It's yeah, not, it's worth, not it. worth it. So it's a kind of like pub brawl type thing where it's like, don't do it, man. Don't do it. It's not worth it. And then he just goes home. He's like, I've seen, oh, that's bad. Don't want to do that. Goodbye. Okay. okay. My favorite line from him was like, half mortal, half immortal. <laughs> what does that mean? I can be half immortal. <laughs> it's like a binary thing. You either are or you aren't. <laughs> Your legs die. The rest of you lives on. <laughs> yeah. So what is it, what is it with vampires? Like yeah. they rush to a certain age and then stay there. Is that the idea? Is that how you so. get past having like... Well, I think it's like you... Uh, most vampires are bitten, so it's like when you get bitten, you stay like that way forever. So that's why our pants has been 17 for 100 years. It's yeah. like a pedo 17-year-olds. But if you're born a vampire, which is rarer, or I don't know, like only the super old ones... Have been born. Are, ...are fertile for some reason. Right. I don't know. And it's because Renesmee, she got pregnant when she was a human and then got yeah. bitten when she's turned. So the kid is like half vampire... Yeah. Half immortal. Half immortal. Oh, yeah. It all makes no sense whatsoever. It's kind of it was. Just know, all sounds like an excuse for um, child like sex, basically, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's all a bit strange. It's all a bit weird. The, yeah, it was quite fun to watch it, having like now watched Robert Pattinson and Christian Stewart be in proper films and do really good performances. Yeah, and they do look like actual actors who have just like desperately embarrassed to be in this film and just yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. getting through it. And not really half-arsing, like, I can't no, I can't make these lines sound good, so I'm not going to bother, you know? Like, yeah. I'm, whatever. Well, they're this far into it that, yeah. you know... Some, I mean, these days, franchise actors have to get used to extremely long contracts. But maybe back then, they were feeling like five films, they were like, that is fucking it. Or by the fifth one, I absolutely definitely can't be asked for this shit. Yeah. And it, maybe they'd broken up by that point, you know? I don't remember where, where things were with the oh, R-Pats drama, yeah, yeah. but maybe there was some tension between them because, you know... Um, she cheated on him with that guy who directed Snow White and the Rupert Huntsman. Rupert Sanders. Rupert Sanders, The author yeah. of Ghost in the Shell. The incredible director behind Ghost in the Shell. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, maybe that explains the lack of chemistry. Maybe. I'm Team Jacob. She should have gone with Jacob. Really? Nah, I'm Team Edward, mate. I, know, I knew you wouldn't You wouldn't buy that. <laughs> <laughs> not for a second. Couldn't, couldn't get that past you. Absolutely not. So, Danny, um, when you're not watching Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 2, sometimes you do this podcast with me. And what does that entail? Uh, let me just tell you the premise of this podcast. So Film Chat is a podcast all about Sam Foster, who, out of work and out of cash, turns in desperation to his disreputable cousin, Vinny, or Vinny's Bail Bonds, for work. Despite having no equipment, training, or particular skill, he becomes a bail enforcement agent chasing after Vinny's higher stakes bail jumper, Danny Moran, a former vice cop who is wanted for murder who also happened to be Sam's first boyfriend who seduced him back in high school and took his virginity. Awkward. In the midst of the chase, Sam has to deal with his meddling family, a problematic tendency of witnesses who die when he gets too close, and lessons in bounty hunting from the mysterious ranger. Who's that guy? (laughs) (laughs) What, Scott? Oh, no, that's Strider. Yeah, not thinking of Lord of the Rings. Yeah, he's also called Ranger, isn't he? Is he called Ranger? Well, he is a a ranger. ranger. He's a ranger. Yeah, same diff. close enough. When he does finally catch up with Danny, he realizes that the case against him doesn't quite add up, and that old flame from their school days just might be rekindling. Is what I would be saying if this was a adaptation of the classic Katherine Heigl vehicle, one for the money. 
It is, in fact, just a podcast where we talk about and review films. I'm Danny Moran, and joining me, a man who will hunt me down, but then, fuck me, Sam Foster. <laughs> <laughs> Hi there. Hi there. So we've got a very exciting, great show coming up for you. We're going to be, well, I'm going to be reviewing the grown-up spy caper Red Sparrow. It's grown up in the sense that it's like a normal spy film, but it's got a lot more horrible violence and nudity in it. And Danny will be giving us his take on the Australian Western Sweet Country. And we're going to round off a generous trio of reviews with a look at the Chilean drama A Fantastic Woman. I don't have gags about those second two films. Maybe I'll come back later. Once They're too I've serious of some. to joke about. Exactly. They're, They're too real. Films. They're important films about real shit. And I'm not going to sully them by making some lazy jokes about people called Bruce or Wallabies or something. Or, or any other kind of uh, stereotype about Chile. Um, can't think of anything at the moment. Nah, can't think of one. Uh, Danny will also be giving me the lowdown on the Oscars, which I didn't watch. Um, I have basically been avoiding all the awards ceremonies this year, been missing out big time. Don't know what happened there. I'm assuming everything that went down was brilliant, and only the best people in films were awarded, and the worst thrown out on their asses and shamed, driven through the streets by <laughs> by a pitchfork mob. Um, all that should leave just enough time for me to try to pitch a... Uh, Radio 4 panel comedy that I've been thinking about um, it's going to be called Much to My Chagrin and David Mitchell's going to present it I don't know what else happens in it but it is called Much to My Chagrin <laughs> <laughs> maybe they just uh, they just tell anecdotes about things that happened and they were not happy <laughs> stories where they started out started out good and then something something turned for the worse and then they all vote on who's a twist in their anecdote was the nastiest. What do you reckon of that? <laughs> what do you make of that? <laughs> pretty, pretty what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> I'd, I'd listen to it. Yeah, for sure. I love David Mitchell. I love his rants. Love his little you, rants. You ever watched uh, David Mitchell's soapbox? Of course I did. I was a <laughs> religious viewer of David Mitchell's soapbox. He was giving me all my opinions back, uh, you know, in about 2010 when he was making I just saved this. it up and just watched all 50 in one go. <laughs> <laughs> Like four hours to get of the content. real hot takes yeah and then like you went around the whole next day complaining about people who say uh i could care less yeah you know and anyone says that you're an idiot it doesn't make sense it's wrong i once listened to his audio um his audio book is of his biography uh backstory yeah and there was like a whole chapter about he went to like angus steakhouse and it was like shit service it's like your life is just so meaningless like there's so little going on that like a good percentage of your book was based on like one bad time you went to a restaurant yeah there's an art to these kind of uh quotidian moans and yeah. i don't think he's i don't think he's nailed it nah nah anyway films and stuff very exciting thing happened to me while I was editing the last week's podcast. I was editing the bit where I was like, I've only got five likes on my Get Out video. I've since gone viral. I don't know how many likes qualifies for viral, but it's well, got I've, a lot of likes. Yeah, it's got loads of likes. It's, uh, it's definitely our most successful ever tweet. This happened because Chris Young uh, linked us to basically a tweet which was the same as my video, but just in picture form. Like, you know, there's three little screenshots. And I just replied with like, lawyer up. 
link but link to the video. Link to my video, but it exploded. And I think what's happened is that we have cracked Black Twitter, the African American Twitter market. We're in. We're in. So I think we should rebrand for an entirely African American market. Yes, that's a great idea. I think the thing that impressed me most about it is that so you know you could see on the on the video that the tweet was from the end of February. Yeah. That our our tweet was, and this one that had been much more successful was in was you know recent. It was just a couple of days ago, and I feel like people really did. You know, it's like they thought that they probably had been stolen, especially once it gets to like 50 or 100 retweets. It starts to look like maybe it already was prominent. Yeah, and it has because people, I think, don't stand for that kind of Twitter plagiarism because I saw like quite a few people. They um, retweeted the the picture one, the, the more successful one, and then they retweeted ours immediately afterwards. And I think they were like, let's go back to the source, get the real one. It's cool. also a lot more effort went into it. You know, you did a, you did a, edited a whole little video. You got the audio from the movie and stuff like that. There's some editing in there. There's some proper editing in it. I do feel like maybe the whole video is about, you know, people saying, uh, I've seen Get Out three times. But you think making a video pointing out this thing is itself something the dad from Get Out would do. I'm just I'm just one level <laughs> deep <laughs> into the sort of like, this thing I'm can, so woke. I'm it can eat it. its own tail pretty yeah, quickly, exactly. can't it? This? I feel like I'm I'm just one step removed before... Um, maybe i'm the dad from get out i think it really depends on your reaction i think if you really press on with the like black people are so cool and i really want to be in on like black twitter and and replace all my followers with the coolest black (laughs) tweeters and only tweet about black shit i think then it starts to become a little bit suspect because then you'll be like oh now i've got photos up throughout my house of uh, famous black people and uh, their great tweets i've got this jesse owens tattoo i've got this (laughs) i'm not showing you that (laughs) Yeah, some of the best tweets ever done by by black people tattooed all over my body, and I actually think it might be quite useful to have access to their minds so that I can <laughs> so that I can know how to reproduce such great tweets myself. And then that's then you're on the path, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that'd be sad. Pretty exciting. Anyway, congratulations. Thank you on the tweet. It absolutely rocked. The only problem is we only got like two more fucking followers from it. What is the deal with the that? Likes are meaningless to me. I want retweets and follows. Yeah. Don't like our shit. Follow follow <laughs> us. Yeah. It's like I don't want applause, I want standing ovations. I actually don't want followers, I want listens. Yeah. Uh, and followers. So okay, here's uh, we want listens and then followers, then retweets, then likes. Yeah, yeah. But okay. like followers are rarer than listens. What I want is like a hundred listens. <laughs> <laughs> and then one follower. Follow a listener, follow a listener, <laughs> listen follower. A hundred tough guys, hundred weak guys to make the tough guys yeah. tougher. Well, yeah, I'm still still um, finessing our social media strategy. You know, four years into this podcast or whatever. Well, you know, takes time. To takes build time. Momentum. Yeah, it takes time, doesn't it? <laughs> we also got uh, a response, which wasn't just a crying emoji to the get out video, but a message from Michael Patrick who tweets us to say, been working my way through Buster Keaton's run of feature films from the 1920s. I can't get over the skill of the man. Link to that. What are your favorite actor-directors? Great question. Excellent question, Michael Patrick. Buster Keaton's run of the 20s films are supposed to be the best ever. Oh, really? They were the most consistent run of classics? Yeah, I think uh, Roger Ebert said that was the best run of any director, was Buster Keaton's run in the 20s. And I've already seen like The General and Steamboat Jr. and... Is that in the twenties? I don't know. Mick, the Steam, ones I've I mean, seen: Steamboat Willie, Steamboat uh, Willie Junior, Sherlock, <laughs> Sherlock Junior, Steamboat Willie, Cops. I've seen a quite. Oh, a you've few, seen quite a few, and they're all really good. Yeah, I so have not I'm seen that many. Just you know. 
What was the Go one? On what was that one we watched where he scuttles up to the window in a really amazing way? That's the general. That's the general. Yeah, yeah. So we've seen. I've seen that one. <laughs> <laughs> Just remember the way he did that being very cool. Um, actor directors. Uh, we were talking a bit about this earlier. Obvious pick Tarantino, one of the greatest actors of all time, and not a bad, not a you know, bit of a dab hand behind the camera as well, isn't he? Yeah. Somehow, I mean, some could say as good a director as an actor. Yeah, I mean, when his he his performance as the bartender in Death Proof is synonymous with all screen bartenders, isn't it? When I, when I, you think of a screen bartender, you think of his Death Proof character. Yeah, I used his monologue from that film as an audition <laughs> for when I went to Rada. Yeah, and, and that's and that's what got, got you in. That's what got you in there. Um, yeah, I was struggling just to think of actor directors outside the sort of 20s and 30s and 40s where like it just seemed you had a contract and people just churned out stuff more readily yeah and uh the only ones i can think of which i guess is similar to buster keen is like jackie chan which is another thing where the hong kong film industry is perhaps closer to old hollywood than modern hollywood in that you just have a star and he's like a jackie chan movie is like a buster keen movie where you just you're just turning up for the stunts and yeah, so yeah, yeah. you don't have to work on an incredibly interesting and you know complex plot. You just need to think of really good stunts. Yeah. Uh, also, Tyler Perry. <laughs> One of your favorites? One of my favorites. Have you, ever, have you seen... Oh, you've seen... Um... I've seen Why Did I Get Married Why did, yeah. and Why Did I Get Married to yeah, yeah, yeah. T.O.O. Yeah. And both were excellent, I thought. Maybe not for the reasons he thinks they're excellent. <laughs> I, I thoroughly enjoyed them. Yeah. I've not seen any of the Medea movies. Um, I hear they're bad. I hear they're bad. He's quite a controversial figure, and I mean, I'm going back to Black Twitter, man. I got to get them on boards. <laughs> I hear he's a controversial figure. <laughs> oh shit! Like, now it's in my yeah. head. Now that I'm constantly trying to court like some African American vote it uh, uh, votes, eh? votes. I'm running for office. Lessons rather. Uh, also, Chaplin. He was good, wasn't he? Yes, absolutely. Hey, I'm pretty ignorant of, of Chappers. Oh, uh, are you Keaton or Chaplin? It's like Stones or Beatles. Yeah, it's like that if I hadn't really listened to either of those bands. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say the thing is like Buster Keaton just did like the same thing, but like incredibly well and perfected it. But Chaplin sort of evolved a bit more. That's my hot take on Chaplin. I can't, I can't challenge it because I'm too ignorant. And that speech from the Great, ta- great Dictator is really, really good. Did you consider Lars von Trier? Does he count? Because he's in Europa and he directed it. <laughs> his, yeah, his elements of a crime. Yeah. Excellent in that. <laughs> Hitchcock, the greatest actor-director. <laughs> <laughs> Always acting in his own uh, films. Ben Affleck. No, I think Buster Keane is probably a hard one to beat. I think he is a hard one to beat. I think the, only way, that, the only way that you could beat Buster Keaton is if Ben Affleck did make that Batman film that he starred in. Yeah. The the Batfleck movie probably would have been better than all of Buster Keaton's films. I mean, the general's pretty good, but it's no live by night, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um... <laughs> so that's a, that's going to be one of the great lost projects. It's going to be like um, that Napoleon film that was never completed. Um, yeah, you know, when Kubrick was going to do. Yeah, exactly. Never completed or indeed started. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did some pre-production on it. He did a lot of notes. Yeah, it's true. So <laughs> get a script of it. Dougal's got the script. Does he? It starts off with Napoleon waking up in like boarding school, and he's like, "Why has someone turned my glass of water?" Like into glass because he's never seen ice before because he's lived in Corsica. Ah. He starts off with this joke about, and it's like, oh, Napoleon doesn't know what ice is. He's, an, he's a fucking idiot. He's not going to amount to anything. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, I'll show you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Zooms in on the glass yeah. of ice, smash cut to a huge frozen lake. And the, the great, the he Grand Armee is, is marching into Russia. 
it's like, to die. It's like, <laughs> I'm just about to start my career as a my lonely career as a hermit monk. It's like, I just have a glass of water. It's like, what? And they like tease me. It's like, that's it. Yeah. Okay. World's greatest general then. Fine. If liquid can turn solid, then a poor man can become an emperor. Yeah. Have you, have you read it? <laughs> How do you get on this tangent? <laughs> anyway, Michael, I think you're right. Mick, Buster Keaton is the best one, followed by Chaplin, maybe then Jackie Chan, then Fazbinder. Then Batfleck. Then Batfleck. Those are the rankings. <laughs> Thanks for writing it. <laughs> maybe Orson Welles as well. You know, he did make the best one of all time. Yeah, Orson Welles is a, pr- is a pretty... Uh pretty key example there yeah yeah <laughs> he's also good he's in there somewhere maybe just under <laughs> throw, 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 throw Orson in there as well yeah why not <laughs> and then Ed Wood superhero films announced casting rumours leaking out M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated Meryl Streep's Oscar tips Matt Damon's in a viral vid Michael Bay's made a mint that's the news that's fit to print so Sam what were you doing Sunday night if you weren't watching Oscars? Sleeping like a normal person? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. I, oh, okay. Um, we watched them together last year, and it was only worth it because of a once-in-a-lifetime fuck-up right at the end, um, which snatched uh, victory from the jaws of defeat for Moonlight, which was absolutely delightful. But I didn't think it was going to happen again this year. Yeah. It did it not seem it like it was going to be that exciting a ceremony, so I just snoozed instead of watching it. Did you see any of it? Yeah, I, w- I, s- I couldn't sleep, so I watched up to, like, the first couple of awards in the monologue, and then I was like, it's not, not worth, worth it. it. Yeah. And then I caught up on it. It was all on YouTube in the morning, so I caught up on all the big wins and losses of the yeah. night. I think I, I, you know, maybe as somebody who does a podcast about movies, it's, a, it's an obligation that I should care about these things and follow them a lot, but I found myself struggling to get too invested in it. But I, the, 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 the awards do not seem to be very... Um, uh, good like they seem to be a bit of boring choices yeah it was all very safe i think basically everyone uh who was going to win won all the actors were sort of locked in before the award show and they all dutifully won gary oldman and alison janney and francis mcdormand and sam rockwell they all did quite good speeches uh i think the highlights was james ivory winning he's the oldest ever oscar winner 89 he's one year uh younger than the actual ceremony wow that's amazing yeah, he's James Ivory of Ivory Merchant Productions, but I didn't know that him, uh, his producing partner Ishmael Merchant was his actual like life partner. They were oh, this like cool. couple for forty years. Oh right, like, that's why you're so good at writing these gay characters, James Ivory, because you yourself, because you've got personal experience. Personal experience. Yeah, he gave a really nice speech, and Jordan Peele winning was obviously really deserved. And oh like, yeah, that was really, that was really cool. And uh, Roger Deakins winning. 14th time lucky oh um, finally yeah i think he was like he got a standing ovation i think he basically has just worked with everyone in that room and like seemed like this unassuming cool dude gave like a very short speech where he just like thanked his crew it's like it's a team effort so this is for them it's like i feel like if anybody who won an award could like do a little grandstand yeah he should be doing the uh that father ted best priest thing where he just shits (laughs) on all the people who like messed with him over the years a couple of father ted references this episode yeah there was like there was a, a few a few very cringy moments. I think Jimmy Kimmel's monologue was quite shit. And his, like, Me Too jokes fell kind of... They weren't didn't fall flat, but they were just, like, scudding around the issue. Yeah, because um, the one, the Kroll and Mulaney one. Mulaney. Mulaney, one for the Independent Spirit Awards. They were they went in quite a bit on the Me Too stuff, and it was quite good. 
Yeah. How did Kimmel handle it? He had a joke early on about how everyone likes uh, Oscar. Like he referred to the award like as a real person. It's like, do you know why? Because he keeps his hands where you can see oh, them. Jesus he's Christ! He's like he's a literal statue of limitations. No, really? Yes, that's terrible. Yes, really? Oh man! Uh, and then it was just like, I don't know. Oh, that would have kept me up. Heart palpitations. <laughs> this is the lameness of that gag. And then there was this weird bit where there's he's trying, he's trying to do it like he's like like he is like eighty eight years old. <laughs> <laughs> he's some kind of guy they've dragged off the the sort of comic circuit. Yeah. Hey folks, how you doing? Hey, I love this look of this statue. Keeps his hands to himself. Know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And then he had a joke about um, Mark Wahlberg getting paid like one point five million dollars when Michelle Williams got eighty quid or whatever. Yeah. And he's like, you know, this shocked me because they were both represented by the same agent. And when you can trust agents, what's the world coming to? It's like the point of that issue is not. The agent's discrepancy. Yeah, what are you on and about? And then he said, like, oh, to Mark Wahlberg's credit, he gave his fee to the Time's Up movement. And everyone applauded. It's like, why are we applauding Mark Wahlberg? That's, well, yeah, that's really bad. And then, like, moving on from then, there was another, like, last year, he had that whole thing where he, like, bust in a bunch of plebs to surprise them that they actually at the Oscars. Yeah. This time, he got, uh, there was, like, a cinema next door watching A Wrinkle in Time. And they, he just shipped a bunch of celebs over to give out snacks. And they, so they could touch the you know the hem of Gal Gadot's robe or whatever, no. and oh, Army Hammer awful. could like throw some hot dogs into the you know these fucking the great unwashed. What do they have? Do they have inter- intermission or? No, like the you know the Oscars run for four hours. Like, do we mean like a sort of ten minute little? No, they stopped the movie for this to happen. Well, that fu- that's that's even worse. Yeah, yeah. At least the people last year were on a tour. And it wasn't out of their way. These for them people to be... almost don't give a shit about the Oscars. They're that's watching why a wrinkle in, in time. That's why they're watching a wrinkle in time. Yeah. Don't stop the film to like, have some fucking celebrities come in and talk to you. I'd be pissed off. Yeah. Fuck off, army. Fuck off. Go back to your chair. And then it was, but by far the weirdest moment was this actor who I didn't recognize came on to uh, give a tribute to the serving military. And then there, there was a sort of three minute montage of like war movies. And it's like, what the fuck was this about? But the what? movies they chose were like Saving Private Ryan and like Platoon and stuff. It's like, have you seen these films? <laughs> <laughs> they're not about, they're all about the horrors of war and how it's like pointless and meaningless. It's like, ah, uh, to our serving military. Yeah, well, Saving Private Ryan isn't about how it's pointless. Oh, that's true. But they had like Full Metal Jacket in there and stuff. And right, I like, see. Yeah, it's like, yeah. And the Thin Red Line is like, um, I don't think you've, I mean, the point of these films are not, it just was incredibly strange. Yeah, it's just the point of them is. War is just really hard, isn't it? Really and hard. anyone who's doing it is awesome and ought to be celebrated. Yeah, yeah. So it's a strange one. Was it, um, uh, what's his face? Fantastic Four guy from Whiplash. Miles Teller? Miles Teller. Was he the actor? Because <laughs> he loves the military, doesn't he? Uh, no, it was, uh, I forget his name. He's a Native American actor. He was in Last of the Mohicans. Shamefully, I've forgotten his name. Have it we talked about YouTube, Miles Teller's um, Apple tweet before? No. But it's <laughs> well, you told me about it, but I think it's worth recording for posterity in case I ever forget. And I'm listening back to the podcast. I want to remind myself. He tweeted like at Apple is like, "Hey, how about you mention our like serving military next time you do an emoji update or something?" <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, like why? Attempt, attempt why is there no woke? soldier emoji or something like that? Yeah, I uh, don't know what that means. It's very, but weird. he would have been delighted with that montage. Presumably, sure he would have been. Yeah, I mean, he maybe would have been better that his own soldier film wasn't in it, unless it yeah. was. Maybe didn't didn't spot it. Didn't see it. Didn't see it. But yeah, it was a pretty pretty dull evening. There were some good speeches. Frances McDormand's <clears> speech was like really good. I feel like she's like sort of 
been forced into this like role she has to like give speeches obviously like she's part of the me too movement so any woman who was like winning the best actress awards has been like highlighted into sort of, like a political position but she seems to be like handling it with a aplomb i don't know well last kind of year i remember there it was so i mean maybe this has always been true but i don't know if it's been sort of ramping up but like every single person has got to do all these like thank a lot of people and then discuss some like pressing global issue immediately afterwards yeah um and uh because two years ago it was oscar so white right and everyone was sort of talking about that at the time and i feel like the year afterwards they were like the oscars is important now every speech is a pulpit and you've got to sermonize about like some issue or other and it wasn't you know just like limited to racism but it was all sorts of different things and was it the same thing this time where like yeah everyone's crowbarring in their sort of personal like issue they wanted to promote um i mean probably like a little more than usual but the Frances McDormand one was like this kind of firebrand speech. You got all the women to stand up and say, like, we've all got stories and, you know, come talk to us yeah, about cool. them. And then she like she said, um, I'll leave these two words, inclusion rider, which I was not aware of, but it started trending, which is obviously, you know, the purpose of mentioning in her speech, which is about how it's like a sort of uh, contract you can have if you're the star of a film where you like like m- minority positions, like supporting uh, parts have to be diverse oh like non like you know in a crowd scene some of them have to be black and women right okay yeah just because and you can have that you can instigate that power on a production as a A a-lister oh cool so that's kind of cool yeah uh was pretty annoyed about alexander desplat winning over johnny greenwoods that's fucking bullshit that is bullshit absolute bullshit mate absolute crap uh but i'm not too bothered about like gary oldman or gamero del toro winning because it feels like they should have won for other stuff you know they feel like accumulative yeah. Wins rather than winning for that particular film. I'm like, yeah, Pan's Labyrinth is a brilliant film. Should have just given him for that. Yeah, Ten exactly. years too late, but whatever, you know? Yeah, and it's a foreign language film, so it doesn't count. Yeah. You can just imagine that it's it's for this one. And Gary Oldman was good in the He's a, he's a great actor. Remember that bit where he says everyone? In he's good in Leon, Leon isn't he? <laughs> yeah. When he does everyone, that's pretty good. Yeah, so why not? Why not? Yeah, that's my movement, not time's up. Hashtag why, why not? Why not? <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just the same as last year, but without the fun of the mishap. You know, doing the same thing twice and expecting a different result is the definition of madness. So <laughs> just don't don't book Kimmel a third time. Yeah, why why did they book him again? Safe pair of hands, even though he proved himself not to be. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, very strange. So, but uh, Beatty and... Um, they got it right. They got it right. There's, yeah, sorry, a joke, there's the... loads of jokes about... You know, the envelope mishandled. I don't think they should have mentioned it. It's too raw. It's too soon. <laughs> it just makes everyone upset. Don't mention it. I think you should have come on again and just said a long hand again. <laughs> that have been fucking brilliant. <laughs> and then, like, have the team of La La Land, like, come back on stage <laughs> to collect it. And then, like, just reenact the whole thing. It's like, no, there's a mistake. You know, Shape of Water, you won. Yeah, that would have... <laughs> that would have been funny. That would have been really funny. And just do that every year. Make it part of it, like Dennis Skinner in that in Parliament, make, always making his jokes. Yeah, yeah, it's like that. Except they always say it's La La Land. always and, La 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 and it never is. Yeah, it's like the way he's always saying he bombed Matt Damon. It's like you know. Yeah, exactly. Except much funnier than that. <laughs> but you know, funny. Did Matt Damon crop up in his in Kimmel's gags? Or no, he was excised due to now being problematic. Oh, I think he said like right at the end of because like oh sorry Matt Damon ran out of time, like like he does on his chat show. Right, I see. Yeah, but he wasn't there. I don't think. It's just lame. It's just lame. I know your friends are Matt Damon. Shut up. Don't give a fuck. 
And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it all scrunchingly poor? How did Danny form a judgment? We're about to hear his thoughts If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off Sweet Country. This is a film I saw at the London Film Festival, which has just got its release. It is directed by Warwick Thornton and written by Greer Simpkin and David Jalsey. And it's a Australian Western, to define it in the broadest sort of genre it belongs to. And the plot is as follows. Uh, Sam is a middle-aged Aboriginal farmer in the outback of Australia's Northern Territory. This is all set in 929. And he is sent by a preacher, played by Sam Neill, to help a bitter war veteran named Harry March to help renovate... Uh, his castle yards and Sam's relationship with Harry quickly deteriorates resulting in a fight ending with Sam killing Harry in self-defense and he knows for the murder of a white man he's going to be hung so Sam uh, and his wife Lizzie go on the run and a posse is quickly formed led by a sort of ruthless sergeant character Um, but as they try to track him down questions of justice start to surface among the community as the true details of what happened comes to light here is a clip of Harry March turning up at Sam Neill's pastor and asking for help with his cattle yards. I've come to ask a favour. I need to, uh, need to fix up my trap yard. I was wondering if you could help me. I can, I can offer you rum and tobacco. No, 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 mate. We don't, we don't drink here at Black Hill. We don't smoke, neither. I'd be happy to go give you a hand, but I'm heading into town in a, in a day or two. Well, what about him? Sam. No, I can't. I can't spare him. I need someone here to keep an eye on the place. I mean, it'd, it'd only be for a day, two at most. You know, it'd be, be the Christian thing to do. Sam. This is Harry March. He's taken over North Creek Station. Could you, could you go and give him a hand for a couple of days? Could you do that, you and your wife? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to re- return the favour. No, no, no. I just ask. I'll see you tomorrow, yeah? The fact that you kept referring to Sam in that just made me think it was one of the joke uh, <laughs> fake-out intros that we do. Uh, I thought this movie was great. It is very Australian, I would say. Mm. I'm not particularly uh, super familiar with Australian uh, films, but the ones I am familiar with are like Mad Max and Proposition and certain horror movies like uh, uh, what's it Wake and Fright. Like Wake and Fright, Rogue Games. And I think they all share this idea of kind of savagery and lawlessness and the idea that Australia is a place where people shouldn't really be. It's like untamed. Most of the place is uninhabitable and all the animals are there are designed to kill you. And all this stuff dovetails quite nicely with the idea of a Western, which is a similar thing of like big, wide open spaces and a certain like lawlessness where anything can happen. Um, But though it fits into that genre, one of the most successful elements of the film is how it subverts your expectations of it. And it's not necessarily because the film is setting out to... Uh, play with the tropes of a western it's more that the western is a self-aggrandizing kind of white male myth all about heroic white guys defeating bad guys yeah uh which is just uh, obviously not historically accurate so by having a honest perspective of events and from an aboriginal perspective it obviously challenges that 
but it also doesn't follow the typical editing rhythm or visual grammar you might expect from like a western story and the pace is quite leisurely and there's no music and you never feel the director's hand too strongly in a visual sense and this probably isn't the best comparison but it's the only one i can think of but it's like something like a ken loach movie in that it's made with a very particular point of view and obviously has something he wants to say but you never feel uh you never necessarily notice the directing if that makes yeah, sense yeah like no, I know just what you the story is very powerful when it kind of gets out of the way of it and that's not to say it's a tool uh it's not like a socialism movie it's very cinematic and warwick Thornton also was a cinematographer from the film and it takes full advantage of the unique beauty of the australian landscape and watching it, I'm completely convinced that no human should be living there. Seems like this sort of alien, barren land. There's a whole bit where they go to the outback, and it's just like this white, never-ending desert. And I'm like, Ugh, fuck, I don't want to go there. It terrifies me. <laughs> you should all go to London. <laughs> go to London. A proper place for humans. <laughs> I'm not saying that you're not human if you live there. <laughs> and every Australian is weird. Um, and the subject matter is really fascinating because it tackles race issues of race and racism and i've only really ever seen that done from the african-american experience and uh, the australian sort of problem of race is quite unique in that the settlers came to them took over the country and uh it's obviously a huge problem like i was reading some quite sobering statistics about like i think uh, polynesian uh people uh, account for three percent of the population and half of the men are in prison it's wow like, Wow. Yeah. And if you're, no, something like 20% of men are in prison. And if like you're a, a minor, you're likely to be like 50% are in juvie. Like you're likely, you're more likely to go to prison than to finish school. If wow. you're Polynesian. Amazing. Like they're, they're pretty terrifying statistics. Um, so, and the, and Warwick Fortin is Aboriginal himself. And he's obviously got a lot to say about this. And it does a really good, interesting job of sort of exploring the weird double think of, racism has this weird anti-logic where there's kind of a character who is mixed race and there are characters who are aboriginal tribesmen who have managed to evade being colonized and the characters of sam and lizzie are like the kind of ostracized by everybody because they've completely been detached from their actual cultural heritage so they meet some tribes people that they don't have a common language anymore and they view them as outsiders and the white people hate them and they're trapped in the middle, completely sort of culturally devoid of everything. Yeah. In a very sort of tragic and uh, honest way, which I'd never really seen in a film before. It's like, it'd be like a sort of slave narrative where they got back to Africa. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. And similarly, it does a good job of not making the white racists cartoonishly villainous, even if their actions uh, would lend it that way. I think it's, um, it kind of reminded me a bit made me think of Selma where the Tim Roth characters is like this insane racist and that's probably very true to life but I just it doesn't have enough screen time to unpack that yeah you know yeah, I mean? yeah. like it, like films that deal with like white supremacists like Romper Stomp or American History X or something you need like an entire two-hour narrative focusing on one character to explain someone that crazy yeah but I mean this one did a good job of uh sort of rounding out the characters and the actors are do a brilliant job of kind of giving vulnerability to uh, the white characters and how just the weird double think of racism. There's a whole bit where they like watch a movie about Ned Kelly and about like celebrating <laughs> his lawlessness while like screaming for these people to be hung. And it's like, well, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty ironic. Uh, and the performances are uniformly excellent. The stars of the show are Hamilton Morris and Natasha Gory Ferber as Sam and Lizzie. And they're both non-professional actors and more than hold their own. And I think it does a really good job of avoiding this idea of like kind of the noble victim 
who's like stoic in the face of all this stuff. Yeah, there's just something yeah. very naturalistic about them, and it, it avoids. I feel like any film about race is just like a sort of running over this minefield of pitfalls. Yeah, and it manages to navigate them all in a way which is very impressive. So going back to my opening point, beautiful symmetry to this. Beautiful symmetry to this. It is like uncompromising in its refusal to give any easy answers, and it's a defiantly political film that's designed to make you feel uncomfortable and question things. And like any good period film, is just discussing now. So it's not always like easy to watch. I mean, it's a very beautiful film, but it just it make it was kind of uncomfortable, but it has to be. And yeah, I was just thoroughly impressed with it. I mean, I I kind of like learned a lot from it. It was quite a good movie, and I was like, oh, I didn't know anything about the history of racism in Australia, and I came out an informed man. Excellent. Sam Neill's also good in it. If that's something you look for in films, I was wavering, but now I know this. <laughs> I will see this film. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Looks like Sam's got a film to review. He's just getting ready now. Hey Sam, here's a few tips for you that I hope are gonna help you out. You gotta come prepared, try not to rush. Speak directly into the mic. Um, don't sort of use filler words too much and try to avoid talking total shite. Okay, start reviewing now. Sam, you saw a proper film, didn't you? With like real issues and stuff in it. Yes, I saw a film that really tackles global issues um, and international politics in a uh, very deep and sophisticated manner. I went to see Red Sparrow. Um, why did I see? Why? Why did I do this? I was just kind Jennifer of Jennifer Lawrence is in it, right? Jennifer Lawrence she is had in some it. A little cleavage in the trailers. So we'll get. I you guess going. why? Yeah, I was just horny, you know, and I was, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "What's the hottest film at the cinema? I'm going to go and see that by myself." Uh, oh, it's two hours and 20 minutes long. Oh, well, I'm committed to this idea. <laughs> oh, never mind. Never mind. Never mind. Never mind. I'll just go uh, anyway. I'm losing the horn a bit, but, <laughs> but I'll go anyway. Cool. Yeah, it was like that. Uh, it looked, I thought it looked pretty shit from the trailers, and it came out to rather middling reviews, but I, 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 went, I went to see it. Went to see it, nevertheless. And it isn't, it isn't that good. So um, this is directed by Francis Lawrence and stars Jennifer Lawrence. The two Lawrences have worked together before on, on the Hunger Games movies. He directed three of those, I believe. Yeah, not the first one. Not the first one, but the others. It's an adaptation of the novel by the same name by a guy called Jason Matthews, who I believe is an ex-CIA guy or something along those lines. Um, and it is uh, follows Jennifer Lawrence. She plays a woman called Dominika Egorova, who is a ballerina in Russia. She's in Russia. She is in Russia. And uh, she suffers a uh, dancing accident towards the beginning of the film and loses her... <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry, it's just like the phrase dancing accident. It just implies what happened. <laughs> 
I don't, I don't want to spoil it, but she suffers a, let's just say, a dancing accident. <laughs> and uh, she can no longer be um, a ballerina anymore. And she ends up being recruited by her rather scary villainous uncle, um, who's literally called like Uncle Vanya or something. And um, he is played by Matthias Schoenertz. Um, and they they recruit her into the Russian intelligence agency. She becomes a Red Sparrow, which is like a group of very young, attractive people who are trained to seduce the people and get their secrets or something. They they cool. They they're evil and they fuck for for their country. Oh my god! Um, and she eventually crosses paths with Joel Edgerton, who plays a CIA agent called Nate Nash. That's a stupid name. Um, and he, uh, and she is assigned to kind of work with him. Nate Nash. N- Nate Nash. <laughs> uh, yeah, she's she's assigned uh, to sort of work with him and like get get secrets out of him, and sure. they end up Fuck playing this Adam. game of double bluffing and whatnot. You know. Oh my god. Whose whose loyalties lie where? Who knows? Assuming it's a who? big. It's very. You know. It's a whole. It's a whole mess, isn't it? Here's a clip of the film. From this day forward, you will become sparrows, weapons in a global struggle for power. Every human being is a puzzle of need. You must learn to intuit what is missing, become the missing piece, and they will give you anything. Take off your clothes. Your body belongs to the state. Since your birth, the state nourished it. Now the state asks something in return. You must learn to sacrifice for a higher purpose. To push yourself beyond all limitation and forget the sentimental morality with which you were raised. Sounds great. Sounds like a... a yeah, so... Sounds like a smash. Well, this film... So the trailer for it I remember seeing relatively shortly after um, Atomic Blonde, that Charlize Theron movie. Oh, yeah. And Atomic Blonde uh, was this very obviously like cartoonish um sort of silly spy film it's just about like a woman who kicks ass or whatever it's like a dumb action movie with obvious like graphic novel influences and i think maybe seeing in that light you might imagine that red sparrow well obviously not quite the same kind of film is going to be like a fun spy caper uh and it actually in in the event takes itself surprisingly seriously and it really pushes the 15 rating it's like there's some seriously grim sequences in it um and like a lot of like sex in it but there's i mean the sex isn't super explicit but it really feels like they've read you know the bbfc guidelines and they've worked out every loophole and so like there's some stuff that happens that feels like it's quite strong what they what they might describe as strong sex um in bbfc terminology um but you just you know you're not seeing too much or, or whatever um and it's also like there's scenes of like sexual assault and Jesus. torture and stuff so there's some like quite hard you know stuff in it and the basic problem is that um all of this unpleasantness and things that you know are sufficiently horrifying particularly the sexual stuff uh that you you know needs to be dealt with rather delicately and carefully and you need to be doing them you know for a good reason and it's all framed around the most idiotic like um spy story ever basically and um this completely cartoonish cold war version of events and i thought for for quite a long time in the film and including after watching the entire trailer i thought this was set in like the 70s or something yeah but it's modern it's modern what? day what? there's like there's a bit really? of, yeah there's like 20 minutes into the movie a guy got off like a smartphone out and i was like <laughs> <laughs> okay it's the it's set right now they've been I'm from the future <laughs> But there's been absolutely no indication of wow, this. Wow, yeah, I thought it was set like I thought it was like a Cold War thriller. Well, exactly. But it's like 
It doesn't make we're, any... We're, we're still in the Cold War. Well, the, as far as the film is concerned, the, like, Russian history has been in a complete, like, um, smooth road from, like, you know, the Russian Revolution to now, which has been a series of evil communists, and that's it. Like, there's no indication that anything fucking happened in, like, 1990 in this film whatsoever. Yeah. It's very odd. Uh, and there's a really funny bit. It's like, so the movie is packed to the gills with uh, great British actors doing absolutely stupid hammy accents, including um, Kieran Hines, Jeremy Irons, Charlotte Rampling. Uh, loads of people crop up in it. And um, there's Charlotte Rampling runs the Sparrow School. And she does. Uh, delivers a bunch of speeches about, you know... Well, does she we, not suffer fools we badly? Will, no, she certainly doesn't, Danny. She's a nice queen. Oh, she is, yes. <laughs> <laughs> rules the rooster with, a, with an iron fist um, and behind the iron curtain behind the iron curtain with an iron fist yes exactly uh, and there's a really funny bit in it where she's like um, she delivers this speech she's like the cold war never ended it all shattered into a thousand pieces and now the west is weak they are drunk on social media and shopping, and they are vulnerable. We must become the great, the vines. great Russia. <laughs> they are on the Twitter and the Instagram and the making of the hashtags, and our mother Russia will rise and rule. It's basically like you know, you know the bit in The Simpsons where like Lenin bursts out of his coffin and is like must crush capitalism. Yeah, yeah. It's basically like that level of geopolitical sensitivity. Brilliant. There's just something that is vaguely almost offensive about using this kind of Cold War tropes. It's like Russia is a real country with real politics yeah. and, you know, real problems and stuff. And it just seems like the laziest, dumbest, most Hollywoody shit ever to just pretend like it's this communist country where things are just bad. You know, it's just a bit bad. It's not really clear that why, but it's just, you know, authoritarian and mean and, you know, there's no freedoms and, and whatever. And uh, it also, like, sort of gestures towards the mutual amorality that's sometimes characteristic of these kinds of spy films. You know, it's like the CIA, like, they are obviously not paragons of virtue. Um, but in the, in the main, it's, it's basically, you know, America are the good guys, Russia are the bad guys, and, like, that's it. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence is like the only American playing a Russian. Every other Russian is evil and, uh, you know, played by an English person. And so it has this, the, the whole framing of it is as a, a movie that, you know, would have been made. It's like a, it's almost like a bond levels of silliness basically in, in, the, in the construction of the film, but with this layering of really nasty, um, like scenes of sexual assault and torture that I just really could have done without to tell you the truth. How's Jennifer Lawrence in it? Um, Rex sounded quite funny from know. trailer. <laughs> but is it good in film? <laughs> Who can say? To be honest, there's no real Russians in the movie, so it's not like you can compare to see whose accent is yeah. convincing. I like how they like we couldn't find a Russian. So Matthew showed us he's like Danish. Or he's something. just foreign, Belgium isn't he? or something. Yeah. he's from the Europe somewhere. Yeah, I, I, I felt like everyone was basically phoning it in. I mean, she has to do some like relatively nasty things in the film, so I think she's fine in it. But it's just, um, I don't think it really gives her like that much, that much to work with. Um, it just sort of puts her through the ringer a little bit. And there's, there's also, I mean, because the whole um, sexual politics of like Bond and other spy movies are often problematic anyway, and the whole notion of having a woman spy who has to like seduce men to defeat them or whatever, it's such a fucking cliche that um, 
I would, you know, you would imagine that if centering the whole film around it, they would sort of tackle it, you know, in some way or it'd be some kind of comment on it, but there's not really. It's just no. kind of cheap titillation, basically. Um, I mean, fine with. Well, I, th- <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe they they intended to uh, make a film that would like you know critique the way that women are instrumentalized or, or something. But um, forgot I, to. Yeah, I don't think it really has has that element to it at all. It's just like there's no real difference between it and uh, you know like uh, gory horror where like what like it's sort of sexy but also somebody dies if you know what i mean yeah, yeah and and so i mean i listened to kermode's review of it and he was like oh i think you're supposed to find it really uncomfortable and it's actually good and i i just don't i don't buy it for a second yeah, i mean there's a period in the movie where like every 10 minutes somebody is like like jennifer lawrence is getting her kiss off and stuff and i'm like i just don't buy that this is for any reason other than to make like a sexy spy movie even if she's really sad and stressed. I mean, that that makes it actively much worse. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, so it's basically a, a bundle of um, nonsense. It, I didn't absolutely hate it. There are some pleasures to be had from it. The opening sequence um, of where it sort of uh, cuts between her doing this ballet performance and Joel Edgerton doing some spy stuff is quite nicely executed, and that's rather good. Um, and there are a couple of like glimpses like that throughout the rest of the movie that that are kind of good. And it has a um, a twist at the end, which is not particularly like amazing, but is at least relatively well executed. You know, so there's a certain amount of like pleasure to be had from the sort of the competent execution of, of parts of the film. But overall, I definitely describe it as not not worth your time. When Ralph heard something that changed his life, what he listened to. When John Cusack made a mixtape for his future wife, what did she listen to? And when Michael Madsen cut a guy's ear off, what was he dancing to? And when Tim Robbins showed Shawshank that he had enough, which record did he choose? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, a fantastic woman. This has just won the Best Foreign Language Movie at the Oscars. It's a Chilean film directed by Sebastian Lelio. And it stars Daniela Vega, who is a trans woman, um, as Marina Vidal, who is a kind of nightclub singer. uh, And she is going out with a man called Orlando, who's played by Francisco Reyes, uh, who's like an older man. And um, should I spoil up to trailer type material or? Um, I don't know. Something, you know. A incident happens <laughs> in, an incident an incident occurs a dancing accident uh, <laughs> happens and um it, the, the film basically deals with the, the fallout of uh of it and, it and its effect on her and how how she kind of goes through society um and and how she's perceived by different by different parts of society as a trans woman um in in the context of the, the fallout of this this accident of this that's event. of the of the event of the happening Yes. Is that a is that a reasonable is that a reasonable yeah, summary? Yeah, reasonably vague summary. I thought this was great. I watched this at the London Film Festival. I just saw it the other day. You saw it the other day. My old opinion is that it's good. What's your <laughs> recent opinion? I also thought it was very good. Similar to I was I'm ignorant about Australian cinema, I'm ignorant about Chilean cinema. But Pablo Lorraine's a producer on it and it also reminded me a little bit of the work of Almodovar. Anyone who I, I, all the directors who speak Spanish are the same in my head. Yeah, I was thinking of Almodovar as well when I was watching it and then I was like, is that just because I'm an idiot yeah, and I yeah. think any film set in a sunny place with a colorful palette <laughs> and it's in Spanish? I'm like, it's like Almodovar. But I think 
there is a similarity there in that it's got this very kind of interesting mood and tone to it where for the first half an hour at least you could say this could become a film noir and i wouldn't be surprised yeah because it's just got this very atmospheric mise-en-scene that, that it continues throughout the movie and i kind of got like a lot of simple pleasures from the fact that everything was beautiful in a way like if you in a british movie if they shot something in the toilet it would look like shit but if you go to a like bathroom in chile like the walls are a beautiful washed out pink and so everything <laughs> is just like looks nice yeah, yeah and yeah. uh you know it deals with a very real issue and like she uh dana vega and it's like about the sort of just the attrition of daily life where she has to navigate all this kind of oppression in small and big ways and keep her poison dignity throughout and it could be really depressing but the film is so much kind of joie de vivre about it and it's all about how she refuses to be you know uh pushed around pushed around and it kind of reflects that visually that kind of the movie is like an like a pleasure to watch yeah like, absolutely I, I thought i thought one way in which it slightly diverged maybe from almodovar is that um, he has? I mean, he has trans characters in in his movies, um, or like uh, drag, like people in drag and stuff crops up quite a bit. Um, and it's usually this kind of like bright, colourful celebration of difference, you know. And it's just part of this his like splashy kind of broad strokes, like big painterly kind of style. And um, and in this movie, I, I thought it was interesting. It was a more like nuanced take on it, basically, because that's the main character, and they're not simply somebody to crop up and be cool and look awesome in these like colorful clothing. Um, but it's uh, just a more psychologically um, a nuanced take on them because they're you know they're a real person, and they're yeah, the focus really. of the movie. And um, so yeah, so I thought that was quite a refreshing thing about it. Um, I also like so the movie focuses very tightly on her and it's uh, she has to sort of navigate this world I mean there is sort of noirish elements to it in a way since she kind of goes from place to place and deals with different people and she's trying to figure things out and um, in a lot of such films uh, you focus like a lot on the inner life of the main character and there's a lot of close-ups of them and like when they're in a scene you're just thinking like what is going on in their mind like what you know whatever you're trying to like um, suss them out and because the main character is um, transgender, I thought there was this different element to the movie where, like, because every time she encounters somebody, they try to figure her out, especially if they've never met her before. And they're like, is this a woman? Is this a man? You know, who is this? And people are reacting in different ways. And I felt like I ended up being cast a bit in that role as the viewer of the film. Obviously, you know, you know who she is, but it's like in every in every scene, you end up studying her, you know, to think like, well, it's like if you're trans, you have to make so many decisions all the time, like even more so. I mean, women do as well, but I mean, cis women do as well. But like trans women have to make so many constant decisions about like exactly like how feminine am I going to be? And like um, and these sorts of things. And you will be you know very conscious of how other people will perceive you, whether if, if you pass particularly well for like a cis woman one day you know then you might get less hassled or whatever yeah and and that kind of dynamic was present in the film in a really interesting way i thought and it kind of puts her in all these different situations where she's wearing slightly different clothes and it's like you know maybe if she was wearing something else you get it she'd be treated in a different way um and i found that kind of interesting you know absolutely because it's like the movie is so tightly focused on her and every other character is as well and they can't get over it they can just like leave her alone uh, which is you know, she just wants to be allowed to just get on with things um and yeah so I thought that was quite fascinating yeah i mean this is a like a really dumb point i'm gonna say it but it's just like i've never seen a film about a trans woman before no absolutely and yeah no, no as no. such that just you know 
it is ten times more interesting than another kind of character piece. Also, it's not like the fucking Danish girl or something where it's just Eddie Redmayne. You Eddie know, Redmayne. It's like an is actual, there a minority like... you won't steal a role from? <laughs> Let's be honest. It's like an actual trans yeah. trans actress. And uh, Dana Vega is absolutely brilliant in it. Yeah, I fantastic if, like, in it. They she, they came with a title afterwards. It was just called like a woman, and he was like, "No, not after this the performance, performance is too good." A fantastic woman. Well, apparently, um, someone suggested to me that the in the Spanish it's like a mujer fantástico or something. Una mujer, yeah, yeah. I can't remember exactly, but it's like the the fantastic um, retains that kind of old fashioned meaning of English of like fantastical, like hard to believe. Right, right. So there's a kind of dual meaning in the title where it's like both okay. that she's brilliant, but also the idea that, you know, some people don't buy her as a woman. Yeah. Okay. Well, Which is interesting. That is interesting. Um, that is interesting, Sam. Yeah. Yeah. She's, I think she is by far the strongest element of the film. And uh, occasionally, I mean, the film kind of sets out to be this quite like, uh, the way it's directed is like full of color and like has fantasy sequences. But I think occasionally it like is a bit on the nose there's a bit where they have like i feel like a natural woman by aretha franklin playing yes and i'm like eh. <laughs> but her performance is like full of subtlety and nuance in a way the film occasionally just sort of like i can't be asked i'm just gonna like go <laughs> you know what i mean like, yeah, yeah 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 i'm just indulging i just like party sequences so there shall be one yeah but, but i was fully in favor of like has these fantasy sequences in them which i'm always a favor of in films i like dance scenes and films on dance movies and musical scenes and films which aren't musicals just yeah. like for a bit of pizzazz well, i thought that the, the sort of musical interlude in this was really good actually yeah yeah i thought I it was it. i thought it was really really well done there are some scenes of like the ghost in the rear view mirror which is a little bit silly yeah yeah um but i don't know i went with it at the time <laughs> i was perfectly fine with it and i also thought the the way that the movie concludes is really good and it kind of, I mean, it has sort of a big climax, um, but it, it doesn't it doesn't have that kind of massive melodrama of like that you often get in our mode of our movie or something like that. Um, but it almost like gets smaller and more personal um, as the film heads towards its conclusion. And there was a cliche or, or not a cliche, but just like a very obvious ending that I was anticipating that it didn't do. Uh, so I thought that was, you know, I was like, good. I guess that's more interesting than it yeah, might otherwise kind of, have been. It's kind of bookended by two bits of wrong footing by the director, I feel. Yeah, very Which much so. Like, but it was a bit like the second time was like clever. It's like, fool me once, movie. It's like, fool me twice. Oh, ah. okay. Um, but there's but, like, yeah, the scene the scene towards the end where she goes to the sauna, I thought was really excellent. Yeah, yeah. It's like really, really well done. Um, and yeah, the way it starts is quite cool as well. Because also it starts in the sauna and like just zooms on this old man. And then it cuts to some waterfalls. It's yeah, like this is a what I thought. Moment. I thought it was going to be like a film noir or something for the first twenty minutes. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. It's almost like you know you were treating this movie with suspicion. Like, cheese your suspicion, <laughs> audience. Stop being so suspicious of people. Yeah, I think I think maybe like the stuff that the, the, that I most like straightforwardly enjoyed is that kind of her interactions with the law and like with people of authority, and yeah. she's deeply suspicious of them. And it's like there's this strong implication that she's had to deal with some real shit before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she does not want to get involved in any way. And she's so, like, used to it. Yeah, it was a bit like, kind of reminded me of uh, making connections to way bar- uh, different podcasts, but, like, when Jordan Peele, like, on Still Processing, was talking about how the black character in Night of the Living Dead is, like, more equipped to deal with the apocalypse. Yeah. It's like, yeah. the trans character can, like, deal with, like, an extreme situation because, like, my entire life is dealing with this shit. So, yeah, like, exactly, yeah. Like, you know, someone would be freaked out by talking to the police, but it's like, I've dealt with this like a billion times i think that's that's a i think that's a real strength because it's not like this celebration of somebody in a shallow way where it's just like they're awesome they don't take any shit it's like that they've been hardened by years yeah, yeah, yeah. years of this yeah 
I thought it was a fantastic film, Sam. <laughs> fantastic film. Fantastic film. I thought everyone involved was fantastic. <laughs> the women, the men. <laughs> How do you define yourself? Fantastic. Fantastic. Ooh, time for a break from all the film chat. Have a cup of tea, maybe make a quick snack. And telephone friends so you know where she's at. Right, that's enough. Now back to film chat. All right, so now that we've got the rest of the boring podcast out of the way, back to Twilight Chat. What else? What else you got? <laughs> Another thing I liked was the way it started off with Christian Stewart just like running around, like going to kill a mountaineer. <laughs> like some guy just like is uh, doing some rock climbing. Just like I don't remember this. Well, she, she's all vamped up, right? She's become a vampire and she's, she, and she's loving it. Doesn't it start with their wedding? Or am I getting this confused? This is Breaking Dawn Part 1. So okay, at the end yeah, of Breaking yeah, Dawn yeah, Part yeah, 2, yeah. she gives birth to the Renez That's right, yeah. Jordan, uh, Jordan uh, Jacob, falls in love with the baby instantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, her yeah. eyes open and they're all like vampire Oh, that's right, yeah, she's a vampire. And now. the sequel, it cuts to her just like running through the forest really fast. Yeah, yeah. Another yeah. funny thing about the movie is like how shit the CGI is. And you can't blame the VFX artists because there's like a year turnaround on these films. And it's like they just have not given, been given the time to complete these shots. But then they have like another year. Surely they shot the two films back to back. Yeah. There's also Renezme was originally an animatronic puppet, which they CGI'd over. I don't know if you've seen the behind the scenes footage. I haven't, but I want to. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, I did like the way that um, Taylor Lautner's performance was entirely as a CGI wolf for the last half an hour of the movie. It's just like in wolf form. (laughs) (laughs) So the actor's like gone home. (laughs) All these scenes of a wolf. Wolf of men. Yeah. Yeah, I fucking loved it. Another thing I liked was just like how shit the battle was. Like there was like they, you know, they're pairing off in different ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like everyone has it to is die. It's like X Men, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, my god. Yeah, I loved it. We will not live to see us like again. I know. It's just it's such like, a shame. You, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe we will, but it's the sort of thing that can only grow out of a franchise that has acquired like so much momentum that they can get away with anything. And they just think that it yeah. does, doesn't matter what they do. Like people are going to come to see it. And where the source material is the same thing, like the Breaking Dawn book must have come out when the when the it was already a huge hit, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, it can't have been something where it didn't get big, and you know, so they can't like, change it. Yeah, ex- exactly. Well, it's like, yeah, the the fans are obsessed with it, but it's also like you know, uh, the author what's she called? Stephanie. Stephanie Meyer. Stephanie, Stephanie Meyer. Meyer. Yeah, like when it when it came to her submitting her manuscript for the third book. The, whoever read it was probably like, "Is this really what fucking happens in this? Like, well, are you, you heard, serious?" Like, Robert Pattinson talking about like how he hates Twilight. This is amazing, like supercut <laughs> of him in interviews. <laughs> yeah, I think I have. Yeah. When I read it, it seemed like it wasn't. It was like it was a book that wasn't supposed to be published. I was, I was convinced that Stephanie was convinced she was Bella, and when, especially when she says oh, it was based on a dream, and it's like, oh, I've, met, I've had this dream about this really sexy guy, and she just writes this book about it. It's like this woman is mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's, <laughs> it's true though, isn't it? It's so strange. He's got but, a taste, but it's like you know she had such clout by that point that, that you know the fans are going to lap and up. So Absolutely. So it doesn't matter. So I really hope this happens again. I really, really want it to happen again. I, I want this like it's a bit like Fifty Shades, except uh, that was too boring. Yeah. But yeah. you need another thing like that where it's like this surprise hit. They translate it really faithfully to the screen, and you just get this like multi-million dollar like absolutely batshit disaster. The other thing, my final thing I really liked about the Twilight franchise oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. is just the random other guys in his family <laughs> who are like, shit, 
but like <laughs> they must have been really bad at acting because like why aren't they playing they, there's like a guy who just looks a bit like Robert Pattinson but it's just like worse than acting yeah. he just sort of stands there like looking like he's gonna freak out <laughs> in these seconds and they're just like because uh, they always have to react because they hate wolves right I've forgotten this but they, they wolves like smell really bad for to vampires so yeah. every time like Taylor Lawton turns up it just cuts this guy like, <laughs> like you know his veins bulging he's just like freaking the fuck out <laughs> I think he's the guy who tries to kill Christian Stewart in the second movie which he gets like a paper cut it's like oh, paper okay. cut it's like, and, like yeah. almost kills him, and then Arpass is like I'm gonna go kill myself instantly or something because you're not safe here uh, that was definitely the shittest one. It's so boring. I'd go Breaking Dawn Part Two, Part One, Eclipse, Twilight, New Moon. So you really, you really, you put Part Two above Part One. Maybe we should rewatch Part One. Yeah, get the measure of it. Yeah, Part One has got like the mental like it's wedding. It's got the cesarean, and, like, the cesarean via biting, and the bit where like they have the the wedding night. And it cuts to the morning, and like the entire room bed, is destroyed. The whole room is yeah, been... but not just the bed. Like, like how do you break that bit? Like, yeah, well, that's sexy vampire. Fuck. The bit that I love about that is the implication. That it's like because he's like super strong, right? So yeah. he has to really restrain himself. Yeah, and like, but he's like giving her like a little bruise, and he feels really guilty. Yeah, about yeah. It. He's like, I would never fuck you again. Why? You know, um, why, don't king shame people. You know, people like rough play or whatever. Well, she doesn't mind at all. She of course. She's into it. Um, but I just love the idea that it's like I have to let out a set amount of violence and I can't reduce it and the all I can do is mi- redirect it so I have to destroy the entire room instead of you yeah you want to you have sex again we got to find ourselves a room with a lot of destructible objects in it so I can really go to fucking town on them and then maybe you'd be okay maybe you'd be okay so I think I'm just gonna have to rewatch the entire saga again do you think that whole like vampire sex destroys mortal woman thing is like um, c- comes out of that uh, old chestnut about what what actually having sex with Superman would be like, you know, well, like his the, like the sperm kryptonite would like sperm would yeah bl- blast <laughs> through right any through woman or something, yeah, which is idiotic. Then it's like the same, you know, in this in this uh, uh, law, that's actually how it works. Yeah, you know what is what is the official verdict on the Superman having sex? Well, isn't this official verdict that it's just a it's just a comic book and it's he it's fine you can just have sex and it not kill you you know I mean how does he shave? Yeah, but all this exactly, but it's like all that stuff which is just like you know good yeah. for, good for pub chat or whatever, but obviously would not be part of the real story of a Superman film, would it? Unless it was Zack Snyder making it. Yeah, Mark Miller's take on Superman. Yeah, exactly. Mark Miller's take on Superman would feature him like forging a razor from the core of the earth in the first scene so that he can shave. And uh, that wouldn't be enough. It'd have to be Kryptonian, mate. <laughs> Whatever. Mate, mate. Whatever. <laughs> but it, like in the Twilight movies, that's like literally how it works. Like they really aren't thinking like that. If a vampire had sex with a normal woman, he'd obviously break her in half, and he has to be the best vampire of all to yeah. avoid doing that. Sorry, feel free to cut any of this, by the okay. way. Okay, no, go ahead. Another I'm just going to cut everything else. Yeah. Another thing I think it does, like, the weirdest version of, but it's true in lots of movies, is the way to, like, um, resolve uh, love interest not being available by having them pair off with a relative. Yeah, yeah. So, like, Jacob, like, I can't go out with Bella, so I go out with her daughter. But the same is sort of true in, like, Captain America is now, like, dating her granddaughter or something, right? <laughs> like, yeah. He's, like, she's a relative for some reason. Yeah. His current girlfriend. It's like, it's like, oh, well, he could never end up with Peggy. But don't worry, he's banging the closest, nearest thing. And that will somehow save the The nearest fan. genetic equivalent. Yeah, exactly. Same thing happens in Bicentennial, man. He's, like, in love with this girl and ends up, like, marrying her granddaughter. Oh, really? Weird, huh? Yeah, because he weird. ages, you know, it's like 100 years later or something. 
Yeah, he didn't have a dick at the time because he, he was a, a robot. He didn't have a dick at the time. He was a robot. He's like, oh. Yeah. Best laid plans. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but that is the weirdest one. But I think it's as weird, if not, if anything, you know, it's like it kind of goes for broke with the weirdness. So I'm it, more into it. Well, it's, it definitely does that. It's like, you know, the plot of it's like year 3000 by Bustard. Your great, great, great granddaughter is pretty fine. But is he seeing that to his current girlfriend? I mean, what's going on? It's true. I'm sure he is, right? Yeah. Yeah. But is, is, the, it, is the implication of that song that they've like hooked up? They've hooked up and the great granddaughter is like his great great no, no, It's also no. his great great granddaughter. And she's pretty fine. Oh, I see. Like is Trump. it his own? He's like, if she was my, if we weren't related, <laughs> we would be dating. Doesn't the, doesn't the song suggest that whoever he's singing to, they don't have children together? Because he's like, your great 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 granddaughter. It's pretty fine. Unless he's not talking to a romantic interest at all and he's just talking to his friend or like, you One know, his boss or something. I don't really remember the lyrics. Time machine, one in the film. He said I've been... No, he's talking, it's like Doc Brown talking to a guy. He's talking to him. He's singing a song. Someone's talking to him. and he's... Shit. So it's like... Okay. Charlie from Buster is being talked to by like a mad professor. Ah, and he's it's saying like, that and he's Charlie like, from Buster. I've Busters. met your great granddaughter, she's pretty fine. Okay, so it's the creepy Doc Brown character. Yeah. All right. Okay, got to the bottom of that. Oh, good. All right. So, okay. with that mystery solved, it's time to wrap up another episode of Film Chat. Thanks so much for joining us. Join us next week. We'll be reviewing You Were Never Really Here. Yeah. Excellent Lynn Ramsey movie. I've already seen it, and I think it's tops. I haven't seen it. It was the. It really stood out there. I watched the. The trailers ahead of Red Sparrow, they were all terrible. They looked fucking dreadful. The only thing that I was interested in was uh, Joaquin Phoenix's performance as Jesus in this Mary Magdalene movie. And then yeah. immediately after that, because I think he's good casting for Jesus. Yeah. Some of the best Jesus, Jesus casting I've seen in recent times, I have to say. Yeah. And, uh, and then immediately after that, they had the You Were Never Really Here trailer, which I've now seen quite a lot of times ahead of different films, but it still looks fucking sick. So I can't wait. Also, do you know what's the best thing about it? 85 minutes long yes mate yes that's what i wanted to hear and now i'm in a great mood and it's a good time also i think annihilation is out next week on netflix for uk oh is the, it just coming straight out on netflix yeah controversially so i think it's out on monday oh right okay interesting all right maybe we'll have that's got like people are like that movie's weird right hearing it's the movie's weird it's weird and it's got women in it all right all right, now we right. now and now we really must now stop. we really must we go. really okay. have to stop now okay okay see you soon guys bye bye, bye. Let's do it. I have to say Aro is one of my favorite characters. I think he's oh, wow. a favorite character to a lot of people. Oh, and I'm, nice. I'm still... There's a lot of twisted people out there. Yeah, right? <laughs> Myself included. Yeah. And I guess you too, if you took on the role, right? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> um, so I'm still haunted by that really diabolic laugh that you bring to the character. Can you set up the scene and explain where that came from? Uh, well, it was my favorite scene in this film was when Arrow meets little Renesmee. And uh, I've always thought that the biggest problem for a vampire would be the boredom of living for hundreds and hundreds of years. You've sort of seen everything and done everything. So when something that you've never seen before appears, it would be like the most extraordinary thing. So a combination of, of that, the delight of something so new and unusual like this, this child, um, but also I love the fact that Arrow is someone who seems so in control and you know, his voice is so gentle and soft and everything's controlled, but underneath is this kind of chaos, this madness, this you know, 
out of control thing. And so the laugh that comes out is suddenly you get a sense of who really is on the underneath, you know, and this kind of dangerous, frightening thing. So I, 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 you know, I tried to go for that. But the laugh was something that happened in New Moon, I think. I, I can't remember what it was that did it, but I laughed this one time and mm -hmm. it came out kind of crazy. <laughs> and so, uh, and, and I think someone, Someone told me that they downloaded it as their ringtone for their for their cell phone. I believe um, it though. Yeah, so maybe now there'll be a lot more arrow laughing cell phone ringtones going on on the plane. How many laughs did you attempt? Well, uh, <laughs> I'm just imagining you in front of the mirror. Uh, oh no 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 no! I no. didn't I didn't try it at home. It was just something that I did in the moment, you know. Ah. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, the one that's in this film is actually probably the most subtle toned down version of the ones that we did on set. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 